All right, we are concluding the series called Every Christian is a Minister. And I'll say that again, every Christian is a minister. And you might be thinking, wait, I thought that was a job of full-time paid Christians to be a minister. And so we've been looking at the book of Acts saying, no, it's not just my job to be a minister. It's your job. And better than that, it's your calling. It's part of your identity as a Christian is that we're all ministers. We call that faith in the workplace, faith in your place of hobby, faith in your family. And so today we come to a topic or a title, In a City Full of Idols. We've intentionally chosen that title today because we're in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see Paul talking with the Athenians in that global class city of Athens. And he mentions in this passage, which we're going to read momentarily, that he was in a city full of idols. And so as we entitle this message, In a City Full of Idols, my intent, our church's intent, your intent, is not to bash San Francisco about being a city full of idols. I just need to say that right out front. Um, We deeply, deeply love San Francisco. We've chosen to live in San Francisco. And as Christians, and since all Christians are a minister, ministers, Christians, live in cities full of idols. Christians don't live outside the city pointing their finger at a city that's full of idols. They don't throw stones at the city that they live in that's full of idols. They live in a way in which Jesus himself lived in those cities that were full of idols, and that is one of compassion, one of generosity. Um, And so uh, today I simply want to give you an outline of where we're headed. There there are three points, as typical. Uh, There's a truth we want to look at. There's a question Um, And there's a contrast that we're going to consider today. The truth is we are created for worship. You'll hear me say that again, but that's the truth that we want to outline. The second uh, point is a contrast of the gods of culture and the god of the cosmos. That's what we're going to try to contrast. And then the last thing is a question. Is faith in Christ nonsense? Is it just a silly idea? So let me read our our passage, and then we'll try to go after those three points. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. You can follow along in your worship bulletin. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So a truth, a contrast, and a question. Let's look at a truth first here, that we are created for worship. And what we mean by that is every one of you is a worshiper. Everyone in this world is a worshiper. And what do we mean by a worshiper? It means that inside of your very soul, there are tentacles, so to speak, that are designed for latching hold of something, some experience, whether it be pleasure, whether it be food, whether it be sex, whether it be our identity regarding sexuality, whether it be money, career, family, the list can go on and on and on. But everyone is a worshiper. And so the real question is, what type of worshiper are you? It's not, are you a worshiper? God has made us as worshiping creatures. The real question, and here's the reflective part that I want you to experience is, what type of a worshiper are you? Are you a person that seeks to just simply travel throughout life or float from one experience to the next and that inevitably becomes what you and I worship? One sexual experience to the next and that becomes the highlight and the reason for which we think or feel as though we were made. And the whole invitation here that Jesus was giving in first century and Paul now writing at the end of the first century is about is there is a much greater invitation for worship, to tap into your truest identity, the very reason for which you and I were made and the nations were made and all cultures were made, is not to worship the culture itself or the idols that the culture presents to us, but that God has made us to worship himself and that in that act of worship, we are most pleased, we find the most pleasure, and we find our truest identity. That's usually what a person's testimony is whenever they become a Christian, is they say, I don't know how to explain this, but I feel like I I became alive, or I feel like I just became myself all of a sudden. So regardless of what your Enneagram type may be, or your Myers-Briggs, or wherever you grew up, or what your culture or your social status is, the truest part of your identity is that you're a worshiper. And I simply ask, what type of worshiper are you? Notice how Paul here is interacting with those in Athens. What did he see? 
What did he feel? How did he interact with what he saw? Verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Verse 23, the objects of your worship. There's even one altar that says to an unknown God, he's saying. He's very astute. He's taking an intellectual approach. Notice he's not even quoting from the Old Testament. His listeners would have been familiar with the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 13, he quotes, Paul quotes the Old Testament a lot because his audience would have been familiar with the Old Testament. Verse 16, the city of Athens was full of idols and Paul's spirit was provoked. His spirit was broken. His spirit was alert and poised not to cast judgment or rocks or try to like change those people or be a morality cop. By the way, that's not your role in San Francisco. He was provoked, verse 16 says. Think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 30, uh, 35 and 36, that when Jesus went throughout all the cities teaching in their synagogues, he noticed that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Do you catch the power there behind Jesus interacting and drawing up close towards those people that you are and I am? We are those people whom Jesus is showing compassion and mercy towards. We are those people that are like sheep without a shepherd. This is how Paul was provoked in spirit. He thought of Jesus who had compassion for them. Uh, We we should... uh, take a moment here and try to uh, explain or at least attach some definition to the word idolatry or, or idols. Um, and one of my favorite uh, writers uh, writing in the 16th century, John Calvin, mentions that the heart is an idol factory. I'll repeat that. The heart. This is in the 16th century. I mean, this is profound. This is deep. This is amazing. Uh, Go go read what you can of this author, John Calvin, but he mentions that the heart is an idol factory. And so uh, he's alluding to things like money, image, career, relationship, sexuality, control. Those things can become an idol to us. Any of those things can be good things, good gifts that God has given to us, but an idol is simply something that we take that was a gift intended for pleasure for us and our good, and we elevate it to a point of being an ultimate thing for us. And can you begin to understand that that's why idolatry is not just wooden things that someone bows down to or a gold image or a silver thing? It's in the heart. It's, again, those tentacles, as I tried to explain from the very beginning, that's inside of you and me and our soul. This is part of our humanity. Paul's not trying to beat us up for this, nor is Jesus. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's provoked. He's moved towards compassion for us. So the application at this point, if you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? Can you just give me the application for this week? Here's the application for this week. Discovery. Discover what idols might be lurking, (laughs) might be being crafted right inside of your soul. It's a week of discovery. The week of discovery, uh, a process of discovery. You may ask yourself these sort of questions as you flow through your week is, uh, where do you find comfort? Where do you find pleasure? Where do you find significance? What makes you feel the proudest? What is it? 
What do I lead with in conversations? What do I wear on my lapel that I want other people to know about me? What is that? Really, a question is, who are you worshiping? To bring it right back to that central question, that we were made for worship. You're all worshipers. Who, who is it that you're worshiping? Um, next of all here is our second point, and it's a contrast. Paul, Paul gives a contrast. Notice how he's doing this. He's going to contrast the gods of the culture with the god of the cosmos. And that's what your role is as a Christian, living in whatever city that you find yourself in. We find ourselves in San Francisco. This is part of your role as a Christian is you're contrasting the gods of culture and the god of the cosmos. Uh, we knew a lot about Athens. Uh, maybe you don't. Uh, if you don't, I'll tell you a little bit about Athens, the cultural capital of the world, global-class city, rich philosophical tradition, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, very polytheistic, open-minded in terms of what and who they would worship, very open to new ideas. Even as Paul sat in the marketplace, it says they did that often. That was part of the culture, architecturally, structurally, a place of prowess, a place of incredible beauty, unparalleled in the known world. Gods of the culture included art and architecture. Idols were altars, images, sculptures, statues, tem- uh, temples, and shrines of the whole Greek uh, pantheon, and the gods of Olympus made of stone, brass, gold, silver. All these things were on display. A commentator states, in the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. They wanted you to know its prowess. They wanted you to see its beauty. A Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a, than a person. We can't emphasize enough the global-class, polytheistic culture that was there in Athens and a fledgling new community called the church was just planted and was just beginning to grow and multiply amidst severe persecution. Other gods of the culture included intellectual ideas. He talks about these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And and by the way, there's a similarity between Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and there's a difference. The, The similarity is... Uh, they, they both know that life has a basic problem. They both know that something got effed up and that here we are and what do we do about it? What is going to fix things was the difference. And so the Epicureans uh, wanted no suppression of desires. They wanted to experience everything. You, if you look at the Enneagram personality, uh, one of them is called the Epicurean. They're very curious people. They love to try everything. They think an unbridled spirit and no rules is the best way to handle life and to let people do their own thing. Stoics, on the other hand, had this rigid discipline, absolutely zero tolerance for the human problem. human problem is there's evil in the world or there's suffering in the world or poverty, and it's your fault. You did the wrong thing to get there. You should have been more disciplined. Don't do that again. Follow more rules and God will bless you. How did... Uh, how did Seeing this city and its people influenced not only what uh, Paul said to the people of Athens, but 
how he said what he said. Like once again, as a Christian, you're a minister, which means you're an evangelist. You're bringing good news to the people around you. And by the way, that's not just a churchy Christianized word. There's uh, even Lyft. If you look on Lyft's website, they have something called a product evangelist. It means someone who's a product engineer that basically wants to share the good news of their product. We don't have a product, we have a person. And so as evangelists, look here exactly what Paul is doing. He, he, he respects the Athenians and Athens as a pagan culture. He respects them. That's what you can do right here in San Francisco is respect. The, I mean, I know this doesn't sound really hard. Respect the people that you're in relationship with. Listen to the people that you're in relationship with. Try to listen to why they worship the way that they do. Even though some of the behaviors and lifestyle choices may have been totally offensive to Paul as a Christian, uh, Paul doesn't erect laws and rules or a judgmental spirit towards them, but he basically stays in that city and continues to converse with them and respect them and offer them questions. Paul respects that all humanity is created in God's image. There's sort of echoes of Eden in all humanity. You can affirm that in your friend. You can affirm that your friend is looking for love, even if it may be coming out in a way that's not exactly as God perhaps intended, but they are made for love. You can celebrate that they were made for love because you were made for love. That's finding connection points in our culture here. Paul respects that all the truth is God's truth. In fact, he quotes two secular poets. He, he does. He doesn't quote the scripture on them. We're reading the scripture now about how he talked to them, but he's using two of their poets. Beautiful. Great choice, Paul. Verse 23. First, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is a 6th century B.C. poet called Epimedes. I'm going to see if I can get it right here. Epimenides of Crete. You say, what's the point? You should be quoting secular artists. You should be quoting secular musicians. Truth can be found anywhere. Paul uses these poets. Number two, he says, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's Eratus, 3rd century B.C., Sicilian. Paul goes on, though, to contrast. And this is also your role as a Christian. He's contrasting those gods of the culture with the creator of the cosmos. He says, the God who made the world, in verse 24. Of course, other parts of Scripture, John chapter 1, it's Jesus, it says, who made the world. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus made the world. How in the world did Jesus make the world? I thought he was born into the world. Brain teaser, except that Jesus pre-existed with the Father and Holy Spirit in perfect union before the foundations of the world. Okay, that blew our mind. Psalm 104, he says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Verse 24, he lets the Athenians know, this God doesn't live in temples. You can't erect some structure that is supposed to summarize who this God is. He's way too big for that. 
He can't even fit in there. In fact, he's existed well before that. And even if you're going to have Earth Day and celebrate Earth Day, which is wonderful, God has been celebrating Earth Day since he made it. He made the universe. Romans chapter 1, he's talking to the Romans, a similar city there in Rome, where he's saying that it's typical for humanity to, instead of worshiping the creator, to begin to worship the created thing. And then look to the created thing and begin to bow down to it, uh, offer money to it, expect things out of it. Don't look now, but that's idolatry. The God of the cosmos, he's saying here. He's also God of, uh, who's the sustainer of life. He, he mentions in verse 25, this God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I love that little part. God is self-sufficient. God is self-existent. God doesn't need the sun shining on him so that he stays alive like you and I do. Doesn't need water, doesn't need sleep, doesn't need wisdom, isn't looking for a counselor, doesn't need a therapist, doesn't get tired. He goes on by saying that this God is the ruler of all the nations. He mentions in verse 26, from one man. What in the world is he talking about here? He's, of course, talking in Genesis, early chapters there, from one man, Adam is the progenitor of the human race. And yet through that one man, Adam, Christ comes as the one man by whom all will be made right and justified through his atoning sacrifice. Only this God does it that way. No other idol can do it this way. Verse 27, he says, therefore, those who are seeking God, they feel their way toward him and they find him because God is not far from each of us. He's right beside you. He's right under you. He's right above you. He's in you. So is there parts of your skeptical nature, my skeptical nature, and our culture in San Francisco's skeptical nature that says, oh yeah, where is Jesus? Where is this God? He's all around you. He's all around you. And that God is the father of human beings. He keeps on here in verse 29, that being then God's offspring, God's offspring, God's offspring, very important. I'll give a quote here from Francis Crick, molecular biologist, who disagrees with that. Um, One of two co-discoverers of the structure of the DNA molecule in 1953, uh, writing The Astonishing Hypothesis, The Scientific search for the soul, he says. The astonishing hypothesis is that you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and your free will, are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Can I give you a reality check? You're more than molecules. You're more than random molecules joined together. You have a soul and that you, you, you were made. I, the nations, we were made to know this creator. And that we can know this creator. And as Paul is saying, that he's there for you to find. He's not like trying to play secret games with you. He's not setting you up so that you can get close and all of a sudden God say, aha, I'm joking with you. It's all a big game. 
It's not a power play. God is personal. He's personal. And do you feel, even for a moment, do you feel the heart of Paul? That he wanted, he deeply wanted his Athenian city dwellers, co-city dwellers there with him to, to know this God, to love this God. Verse, verse 30, he mentions that God is the judge of the world with this word ignorance. The Athenians acknowledge their ignorance of God. They do. And Paul invites them to repent. There's the message. That's the message of Jesus. For indeed, in verse 31, he says, this God will judge the world in righteousness. Repent is the message. So here's the application. Once again, if you're wondering, okay, how does this apply to me? All this sounds kind of neat and interesting. What's the application? We said the first application was discovery. This application is deconstruction. You begin to, I begin to discover idols that are there, and now deconstruction begins to happen, where an idol is deconstructed. An idol is deconstructed. We, we looked at it at our retreat this past week in 1 John chapter 5, where he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Exodus chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before me. So the answer here is to repent. It means to turn from. That's how you deconstruct an idol. You turn from. You turn from that thing that's promising to give you pleasure or fulfillment or control over your future. Ha ha. You turn from that. Lastly, a question. That's our third and final point. A question. Is faith in Christ nonsense? Of course, the Christians in the room right now, or those listening, are, are thinking, of course not. But for the skeptic in you, dear Christian, and for your skeptic friends, dear Christian, that's exactly um, what their question is. Is faith in Christ total nonsense? Verse 32 through 34, I love how this segment ends. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of Christ... That's what Paul was telling them about. When they heard of the resurrection of Christ, some of them laughed out loud. Some of them mocked, basically saying, are you intelligent? Aren't you modern enough? Aren't we even postmodern? Shouldn't we be done with talking about Jesus by now? Uh, but others said, we will hear you again about this matter. And then some joined the church. Some believed in this Christ. And that is exactly what was happening, not only in first century, but today. It's happening right here in our church, number one. It's happening right here in San Francisco. Uh, I, I just want to real quickly say that faith is nonsense. Faith is nonsense. And what I mean by that is if you think of the five senses, sight, smell, sound, taste, touch, faith isn't one of the senses, is it? It's not listed there, and that's on purpose. Um, it's possible for something to exist without you seeing it. I could tell you there's a beautiful painting behind you right now, or you, me. And my prideful, your prideful heart could say, oh, no, it doesn't. And it won't exist until I see it. Point being, something can exist before you see it. It's possible for something to exist without you smelling it. 
This would be a neighbor who has B.O. <laughs> and they're far enough away from you that you don't smell the B.O. There's still B.O. there. <laughs> something can exist without you smelling it. It's possible for something to exist without you hearing it, tasting it, touching it. Uh, a little... Uh, a little experiment here. What if we blindfolded someone in the audience and we told them to find a candle somewhere in the room? And the only way to find it is, that, is if they bumped right into it and felt its heat. Or if they got close enough, perhaps they could smell its scent. Or perhaps we could guide them along with our shouts. But only if they could hear us. Suppose the person said emphatically, There is no candle in the room. I repeat, there is no candle in the room. Truth doesn't need you and I to agree to it for it to be truth. Truth is truth. It's possible for something to exist without us seeing it first. And there's a reality that goes beyond the senses. What I'm trying to say here is that our our senses don't lead us to reality. A reality enhances our senses. This is exactly why in John chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he wanted Nicodemus to be reborn so that he could see God. If you and I are struggling to see God, it requires belief, which is a gift. It's not seeing is believing, but it's believing is seeing. That's what Paul is presenting here. Application here, in case you're wondering, how do I apply this this week? What does all this even mean? We talked about discovery of the idols. We talked about deconstructing the idols. And the last application here is replacement. Idols don't just need to be turned from. The heart must turn to something else. You must replace it with something else, or another idol fills its place immediately. Immediately, uh, I'll quote Thomas Chalmers, a prolific Scottish pastor in the early 1800s. This is so profound. I love this quote. He says, The explosive power of a new affection is more successful in replacing an old affection than simply trying to end it without supplanting it with something better. You have to. We have to find something else to take its place. We must have something to cling hold of. And this is where Jesus is inviting you. This is what it comes down to for me, for you, our our colleagues, those that we work with, the people here in our city. Is Jesus making the audacious claim to you that if you're hungry, if you're truly thirsty, come to me. And unlike all the other gods of the world, unlike all the other idols of the world that will promise things to you, and in fact, steal your very soul from you or lie to you and cheat on you, Jesus says the opposite. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me. I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. In conclusion, this discovery, deconstruction, and replacement is indeed a process. As a church, we don't say, okay, everybody walk the aisle right now. And let's start playing the organ and get everybody pumped up so that you can take care of all your idols. Right now, do it. Replace all their idols. Now, there is that call to repent and to turn from the idols and to turn to Christ as the only living and true God. But there's a process. There's a process whereby that takes place day by day, moment by moment. 
And that's the encouragement as we enter into prayer right now together. Let's pray. Father God, we, we ask you to search our hearts. Search our hearts, as the psalmist said, and see if there be any harmful way in me. Meaning, search our hearts. Help us discover what false idols and false gods may, may be there. Stealing joy from us. Stealing pleasure from us. Lying to us. Making us bound. And Father, deconstruct those false gods. Help us get to the root so that we become sick of it. That we would repudiate it. We would turn from it. And turn to you, O Christ. Help us discover these false gods. Help us deconstruct them by your Spirit and help us turn to you, we pray. And Lord, give us an even deeper love for San Francisco. This city that we find ourselves in. This city full of beauty. This city full of money and wealth and and intellect and the history of San Francisco. Father, we we thank you for all of those wonderful blessings that you've given us, but Lord, we, we pray that none of those things would be an idol. And for those suffering in our city, because the system has become an idol to others, the system that pushes others down or takes something like sex and then uses it for sex trafficking right here in our own city, Addictions, pride, injustice, jealousy, racism, classism. Father, indeed, we live in a city full of idols, and at the same time, we admit that our hearts are also idol factories. Help us all repent and give us your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.